welcome to another episode of the Undocumented Black Girl Podcast with yours truly, Danae Joseph. Today, I am so honored to have Cheryl Aguilar, Liliana Campos, Herman Cadenas, and Lara Minero. These are phenomenal individuals who are contributors to the newly published Mental Health Guide to Providing Mental Health Services to Immigrants Impacted by Changes to DACA and the COVID-19 Pandemic. Try saying that five times really quickly. (laughs) And so this was done in conjunction with Informed Immigrant, an organization that connects the undocumented immigrant community and service providers with the information and resources needed to feel safe and empowered in spite of one's immigration status. It's definitely worth noting that each of these mental health providers and scholars identify as immigrants themselves, whether or not they are current DACA recipients or formerly undocumented people. And I think that's the crucial difference between this guide and some that I've viewed in the past. So I'm going to go one by one and introduce each of these phenomenal people and the work that they've done to contribute towards the immigrant community. So the very first is Cheryl Aguilar. Cheryl is a licensed independent clinical social worker. She is a founding director and lead therapist at Hope Center for Wellness, a Washington-based practice that is focused on holistic healing of individuals and communities. She specializes in working with immigrants, asylum seekers, and refugees, and has designed and implemented several several emphasis on that culturally competent groups including emociones y politica a support group and workshop for immigrants facing anxiety due to the current political climate cheryl combines her passion for micro meso and macro work advocating for the community she serves she is a speaker and trainer on culturally competent work with latinos immigrants and refugees she has also started trauma-informed care telemental health self-care, mindfulness, among other topics. So thank you so much, Cheryl, for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Of course. The next person that we have is Liliana Campos, who I have the honor of knowing and have witnessed her in her full glory and power. Lily was born in Mexico City and crossed the border to the U.S. at the age of seven with her family. Lily is a doctoral candidate in clinical psychology at the University of San Francisco. Lily received the 2020 WebMD Educator Health Hero Award for her work on raising awareness about the impact of immigration status on health over the last 10 years. She is Immigrants Rising's mental health advocate and the 2020-2021 AB 540 undocumented student doctoral intern at UC Davis. Thank you to my friend Lily Campos for joining us today. Thank you so much. Of course. The next person that we have is Herman Cadenas, who identifies as a Latinx immigrant, and he was undocumented for nine years. He has a background in community organizing, activism, and advocacy for immigrant rights. Now he is an assistant professor of counseling psychology at Lehigh University, where he specializes on the psychology of undocumented immigrants and underrepresented minorities. His work particularly focuses on the ways critical consciousness and resistance to oppression are protective and healing. Herman, thank you so much for joining me. 
It's an honor to be here. Thank you. I appreciate you. The last but certainly not least person that we have is Lara. Lara is a doctoral candidate in the Counseling Psychology Department at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and four dissertation fellow as an undocumented queer mujer of color. She's an advocate and social justice researcher. Lara examines how policy impacts the lived experiences of undocumented immigrants and LGBTQ plus communities to identify how to better serve these populations through more inclusive implementation of policy and distribution of services. Lara also weaves her interest in reforming policies and creating inclusive and equitable systems and environments into her provision of trauma-informed, affirming and evidence-based clinical care as a current stress, trauma, and resilience clinical intern at the UCLA Semmels Institute for Neuroscience and Human Behavior. Go Bruins, and thank you so much, Lara, for joining joining me today yes go Bruins <laughs> the honor is all mine thank you so much <laughs> I appreciate you all and as a fellow Bruin I had to throw that out there hope you don't mind <laughs> sorry to everybody else on the line <laughs> so as I mentioned earlier this conversation was scheduled weeks ago um and my purpose on the importance of cultural competency of mental health professionals when dealing with our undocumented community in wake of all that's going on, right? We have one, the Supreme Court's looming decision on the faith of DACA, but then we're also battling the COVID-19 pandemic. But unfortunately, when it comes time for white supremacy, it does not take into consideration the other issues that we're currently facing. So we're currently witnessing global uprisings as a result of the videotaped murder of both George Floyd by four police officers, the lynching of Ahmaud Arbery by four white supremacists, and the murder of the 26-year-old emergency room technician Breonna Taylor. Um, And that was done by the Louisville, Kentucky Police Department. So I know that's a lot. (laughs) It was a lot for even me to say, but I think it had to be said right because these are such uncertain times we're navigating a world that isn't understanding of the historic trauma that myself as a black woman as a black woman that us as people of color have had to navigate in this country and so first and foremost before i even get started i just want to ask how are you all doing? How are you as mental health professionals taking care of your own mental health right now? And I think anybody who wants to jump in can get started. So maybe we'll this go with Cheryl. Cheryl. Yeah, this is Cheryl. Um, that, thank you for asking that question. Um, oftentimes our focus is to care for our clients and um and as a mental health provider I don't often get asked that question so I really appreciate it Mm -hmm. you know I think for me uh I know what's coming this week uh which means helping my clients process what they have experienced in the past weekend or in the past week regarding the news so I know that I have to be mentally well and 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 grounded grounded enough to be able to hold my clients emotions Mm. Uh, and, and so this weekend was dedicated to that, figuring out how do I balance uh, managing my own emotions, my own anger and frustration 
about the state of the country and what's happening to black lives and what's happening to brown lives mm. and being able to come to a space where I'm grounded enough where my own stuff doesn't get in the way of holding somebody else's emotions. So this weekend was kind of dedicated to trying to understand more a little bit about the issue, but with limits, mm. uh, getting myself informed of what's happening through the media and some articles and I was just listening to NPR, but also with limits because we want to be informed, but we want to have some boundaries around it. And just doing the things that kind of make me whole. Uh, I spent some time with my family while physical distancing. I did a little bit of reading. And I, and I, I still have a little bit of way to go uh, this evening to kind of prepare for, for what's coming tomorrow. So for me, it was important to, um, I know this week is going to be about pouring out and holding the space for others. So being able to come tomorrow really re-energized and and grounded enough to be able to do that for my clients. Cheryl, I love that your main word was grounded and the importance of you being grounded enough to give to other people. I think that's so crucial for folks who do this work because one of the things that we need to realize is that we actually can't pour from an empty cup, right? We have to be filled enough in ourselves to be able to serve other people. It's okay to practice self-care. It's okay. It does not make you weak. It does not make you less woke because you're not directly on the ground for you to stay home and be all right and make sure that your mental health is checked. So thank you for reminding us about the importance of being grounded. How about you, Lily? Um, What have you been doing to practice self-care? Yeah, thank you so much for that question. And I just want to say, Cheryl, you know, uh, to both of you, thank you so much for reminding us, reminding me of, of this very important practice, right, which is centering ourselves, keeping ourselves grounded and maintaining, right, sort of this balance between continuing to do the work, whether that be checking in with within ourselves, right? I think mm. for me as a, as a brown Latina uh, woman checking, you know, the many parts of my privilege, right? Mm. Lily? Hello, Lily? Hmm. Lily, can you hear us? That's weird. It says she's still connected, but I don't hear her anymore. Can you all hear her? No, we can't hear her either. And I also see that she's connected. Interesting. Lily, can you hear me? Okay, so in the meantime, Lara, can you tell me how you have um, maintained your own mental well-being right now? Yes, again, such a thought, uh, thoughtful question. So first of all, thank you for yeah. that. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I feel like I've been doing um, it's just connecting to my loved ones. I think this weekend was a really um, interesting one for me. So I'd been having ongoing conversations about what's been happening with my black siblings um, Mm. and been connecting to people in my own life who are directly impacted, also honoring my privilege. And then I defended my dissertation on Friday, which is... Oh, wow. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And it was, you know, I started with a moment of silence for our black siblings who Mm. were killed and murdered Mm. by police. And my topic was so relevant to this because it was on the systemic oppression and injustices that are 
um, Latinx trans immigrants face um, through the through the unjust immigration system, um, particularly detention proceedings. And, you know, having having gone through that and seeing so much of my community show up to that, um, you know, I also wanted to hold space to celebrate. Um, And I know it was a privilege to be able to disconnect and hold space for that. My wife surprised me and brought my parents from, you know, three hours away Oh, wow. And a few of my friends showed up here um, and celebrated. And I think mm-hmm. that's a form of self-care. When things like this happen in our community, we feel like we, you know, like we shouldn't allow space for a lot of different emotions. And so right. I allowed myself to just be present. I wasn't on my phone. I haven't even mm-hmm. shared on social media, you know, that I, I successfully defended. Um, because I was just present with my parents, um, with my loved ones. And we just found mm-hmm. out yesterday that my grand uncle um, died from COVID. And so I was with my mom who was <sighs> grieving and not even, you know, her not even being allowed to, to fully grieve and to, to see her family. And then she has to show up to work today. So I'm right. just creating space and honoring all the emotions that come up for me and knowing that there's a little bit of everything, you know, for me, I have some joy. I know I've worked a long time to get to this point. Um, And I'm also mindful of all the work that we've yet to do. And and the intersectionality piece is so important, which is why I was so honored to be asked to be on this call today, because we really do need to come together uh, around these things. But I think, again, for me, it's just allowing space to feel whatever it is that comes up and also just giving myself the permission to you know disconnect and and celebrate the good things that are happening in my life and and again I know that's a privilege and and that's a way that I've taken care of myself this weekend. Lara thank you so much for that first things first I just wanted to say so sorry for your loss and Mm -hmm. I'll be praying for both you and your family I'm so sorry for that but I also want to congratulate you on the incredible accomplishment of being able to successfully defend, you know, your hard work, you know, and everything that you've worked up until this point for. So, so sorry, but then also congratulations. And that's something that is so complex and mind boggling about being a person of color, being a black woman, mm-hmm. is that there are days like that, right? Mm-hmm. Where you'll be experiencing so much joy and positivity, and then you'll come across something that just completely shakes your whole world, right? Mm-hmm. And those complex emotions are something that we need to deal with. Um, and it doesn't require any specific time frame. It's just whatever time we need to be able to take care of it. Um, I don't know. I hear a little bit of like a whooshing sound in the background. I'm not sure who that might be. Hi, everyone. I'm back on. I'm trying to be mindful if that might be me. Okay. Um, so I'll try to monitor myself. Um and um, I apologize. I lost the signal a minute ago. Ooh, no problem, Lily. But if you don't mind continuing what you were saying, because I think you were going to say something incredibly powerful. Do you mind continuing um, your process as to how you've been practicing um, self-care and making sure that your mental health is well? Yes, absolutely. And I apologize if I, you know, reiterate something or repeat something. No problem. <laughs> just like everybody was mentioning right I think being able to find this balance between 
you know, remaining informed, um, you know, staying up to date, and then at the same time, being able to retrieve in a way where we're mindfully and, um, you know, really aware about what's happening in our bodies, what's happening in our minds, what's happening in our spirits, mm-hmm. right? And I think, you know, one of the one of the things that I think often comes up when we talk about, you know, self-care and healing, right, is being able to put on that oxi- oxygen mask on ourselves right. before, right, we go out into, into the community or we check in with other folks, right, mm-hmm. and think that there's so much power in being able to hold space for each other right now. But I think when we think about, you know, the ongoing, right, sort of trauma and effects of colonialism, when we think about the ongoing and psychological effects of racial trauma, right, like that does sit in our bodies. And I think that, you know, even myself as a brown woman right now, right, recognizing my own privilege, recognizing the ways in which I can show up as an ally and the ways that I need to check my privilege, Mm. I feel it in my body, right? Like, sort of like a trauma response as a, as a person, as a human being. Right. And I think as a, as a clinician, right, as a friend, as a family member, how do I manage to show up for my friends mm. and my loved ones um, is incredibly important to me that I think for me, you know, um, sits in, in my spirit very heavy. So I think I struggle. I think like a lot of people, right, right? I think I'm in, in this place where, yes, I'm, I'm struggling and I'm sitting with a lot of, a lot of pain, a lot of anger. Um, but also, you know, finding the ways and the moments where I can turn on that. Mm. Lily, thank you so much for that. Herman, I was wondering about you. How have you been practicing self-care? Or have you been practicing self-care? Maybe that should have been part of the question, too. I have. I have. and, And thank you for asking that question. I think part of what's been keeping me sane is actually looking forward to this podcast i've been really looking forward to having this space um and to to talk about this intersection right of race ethnicity immigration status gender you know uh, sexual orientation and and to share the space Mm. with everybody on this call um so this uh, so this has been huge um, something that I, I, and thank you for the invitation, um, something that I do want to say before I talk about my own self-care is acknowledge mm. my own privileges. Um, so first of all, as a, as a cis man, um, I, I, I do want to uh, acknowledge that I have unearned privileges and also as a, as a light-skinned mm. Latinx person um, because the way that I... I flow through the world in the way that I navigate the world. I think I am perceived in ways that are right. that are positive, right? That have nothing mm. to do with who I am, um, and it, it's simply a conditioning yeah. of society, right? To kind of treat me well and, and, and respect me and, and whatnot mm. without having done anything. Um, so so I want to I want to acknowledge that, and and I I appreciate you calling on me last, even with this question, because. Um, I think that, you know, sometimes our society teaches men and particularly white men that yes. um, they have to dominate, you know, that they have to be assertive and dominant and like, you know, like really take up a lot of space and conversation. Um, and, and that's something that I'm, I'm trying to be mindful of and trying to hmm. step back a little bit more um, because I, I think it begins with, you know, feeling dominant in conversation and, um, 
suddenly, you know, people feel like they can be dominant over other people's um, physical body. And, um, and, and we know that that's deadly, right? And we know that that can result in, in yeah, in, mm. in tragedies. Um, yeah, so I wanted to thank you to for that, acknowledging that. Uh, no, that's that's definitely something absolutely. that's incredible, incredibly crucial to our conversation, and that is checking one's privilege, right? But not just checking one's privilege. I think it's also checking those around us and understanding how certain conversations can lead to the perpetuation of anti-blackness, right? Anti-immigrant sentiment. And sometimes it's by our own families. You know, in the midst of everything that's been going on with these uprisings that we've been witnessing across the nation, I've seen a lot of individuals of privilege tell Black folks what we should and should not be doing right now. And I think those folks need to take a step back they need to understand, just like you said, Herman, what privilege is, what it means for your positionality within society, how those in positions of power view you, and most importantly, understanding that the things in which we're able to do, we could do the same things. Both of us, me as a Black woman, you as a cis Latinx man who is light-skinned, like you pointed out, can do the exact same thing and have the repercussions be completely different. So I'm so glad that you started the conversation by saying that as far as your own perspective on the issue because that's what I actually wanted to ask you next so it's like you already read my mind and knew Um, and the reason that I started by checking in one is because I truly do care that everybody's okay and mentally well enough to have this conversation but also because I'm personally tired As a black woman, as an immigrant, I am tired. I am tired because not only are we living in a moment in which DACA is currently being held before the Supreme Court and there's a looming decision on the program, but I'm also tired because every day my very existence is being weaponized. And I'm also tired of the labor that I have to do, right? And it's a lot of labor for me to have to explain to folks who call themselves allies to myself and to the Black community. I have to explain to them why this moment, why this movement is happening. And so with that, I wanted to ask you all, what have you all been doing? Have you had to check members of your own families? in an effort to lessen the load on Black people like myself, and if not your own family, as allies to the Black community, what advice would you give to other allies to lessen the load and the labor on Black people like myself? And with that, I'd like to start with Cheryl again. Mm-hmm. Thank you, and that's such an important question. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is that this is not a time to be bystanders. This is what we're seeing right now is the culmination of anger, pain, and yes. hurt in our communities. And it calls for Absolutely. us to act in whichever way we feel appropriate mm. for ourselves. Um, this is an opportunity to step up mm. when we haven't and, and figure out on, while honoring uh, what we need to do to stay healthy. So, so finding that balance, I talk about balance a lot because it's a hard right. balance to find. Um, if we are constantly in situations of confrontation and, and 
and discussions and argument that also has an impact to our psyche and that also has an impact to our overall well-being. So finding that balance of what is going to be a battle or a fight that I want to take on today or what what are going to be some conversations that I know are going to be difficult mm-hmm. that I'm going to take on today um, and maybe figuring out what your bandwidth is, yes. your emotional bandwidth. Um, I think this is an opportunity to educate, but we... And I say that because, and, and I say that while also acknowledging that we need to empower others mm. to educate themselves. Because as you were sharing, it's a, already an emotional uh, burden to be having to educate people over and over and over again about right. our experiences. Um, so, so figuring out what that looks like for you uh, or, or for our audience. What is it for you that is going to help you remain in the fight, remain healthy, but also educate? For me, sometimes that may be, you know, uh, I may be curious about someone's experience or someone's stereotypes or unconscious bias, and I may ask questions. If I feel like I have the time and the energy to engage, I may ask questions like, I wonder where that idea came from for you. I wonder if if this could be an opportunity for us to talk about it. I wonder if you uh, will be open to some ideas. And if I feel like I may not want to engage, I may say, you know what, Uh, based on my experience, that's not what I believe. And I would love to introduce you to some other ideas. And I may share a link or I may direct Mm. someone to to a place where they can get more information. So I think for me, I can tell you what has worked for me is kind of understanding my own emotional bandwidth and and how how I may be able to impact at that particular moment. and there will be times where I get into heated <laughs> conversations, you know, either with family members or with colleagues mm. or with friends. Uh, and sometimes I mindfully have to challenge clients. Mm. And, and, and in that space, you have to do it really delicately, really consciously. But I think what I have seen that works for me is being able to understand that we form our ideas. And just as we form ideas, we may be able to unlearn mm. some of them. Uh, and our approach, the way that we approach confrontation or discussion is really important as well. I try to really look at things from the point of curiosity. Like I'm, I'm genuinely, most of the time, curious about where right. a thought came from. Because we know that how we think, what we think right now is been a part of socialization we might have learned it from our parents we might have learned it from our neighborhoods we might have learned it from the media we might have learned it from the government and and i i know that this group and 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 in many other spaces that we're in we believe that stories change hearts and minds so i i try to find opportunities for uh sharing a new story or uh sharing a new fact that someone may not know or being curious about where an idea came from and and sometimes i may politely ask for an invitation to have a conversation or sometimes I may be I'm mean, right. just getting there you know I think it depends on uh the situation the person whether I feel safe I think it's something important mm. to kind of check uh I know Lily mentioned our bodies tells us sometimes how we feel like what figuring out do I feel safe right now to engage in this conversation I love those points that you mentioned those are some gems I want everybody to understand exactly what Cheryl just said She has challenged her clients in the past, right? That's something that I have yet to hear a lot of mental health professionals say that they do, right? Because usually they take, well, based on my experience, they take on the position of neutrality. 
right? And if we know anything both from Dr. King, if we know anything from Desmond Tutu, we know that when you are neutral, you are basically taking the side of the oppressor. So I do appreciate that someone in your position, instead of just going along with whatever your client is saying, is taking the moment to really push back. And I also like the point that you made about addressing each situation, even when you do have to challenge your clients, that it's more so coming from a perspective of curiosity. Hmm, that's interesting. Why is it that you feel that way? I'm not saying that's exactly how you said it, but I do appreciate more so the thought process that goes behind that. Because if we do approach people a lot of times in a way that's just, you know, challenging from the start, they may not be willing to engage in that conversation to the degree in which we need them to engage to change viewpoints. But then also, I like that you brought up the fact that this isn't just something that came to be. This is a matter of opinions being framed by our society by our government and sometimes by our own lived experiences that we lead to generalizations of people across racial and ethnic lines, right? Um, And to that, it brings me to ask Lily this same question because right before we got on, Lily wrote a status uh, or a post and it mentioned the importance of decolonizing our minds. And I think that speaks to your point, Cheryl, as well, too, that you just brought up about socialization. So granted, I wanted to ask you, Lily, why is it important, especially in the midst of everything that we're experiencing, not just in the United States of America, but across the globe, in this moment, in this movement that we're witnessing, that folks decolonize their minds? Why is that an important point in order for us to get to a better place, not just as individuals, but as a society? Yeah, thank you so much for that question. You know, I think about that every day i think as mm. a as a as a person as a woman of color as an immigrant having been formally undocumented and now can hello oh no lily oh no what is going on with the san francisco wi-fi today <laughs> Lily, can you hear me? (laughs) Lily? Okay, the devil is trying her today, clearly. (laughs) Okay, so, uh, okay. Um, Herman, would you mind answering that same question? And I know you all might not necessarily have the exact same viewpoints, but until we can get her back, um, what is your viewpoint? (laughs) I'm back. Oh, okay. I think something's going on. Like, I just feel this is like a metaphor to me actually wanting to talk about these things. Somehow, <laughs> Big Brother's out there being like, nope, you're not. Listen, listen, Lily, this is some FedEx stuff, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I swear, I'm like looking outside my window, like, and messing with like the tech. Oh, no. I I, I was saying this is how you know the conversation is needed when there's forces working against you to ensure that it doesn't happen. But let's hope moving forward that that isn't a problem. So I'm going to frame the question once more. I I love that that's at least a moment of levity for us. Thank goodness we needed it. (laughs) 
but I'll frame the question once more. <laughs> Lily, you posted earlier about the importance of decolonizing one's mind. And I think that's crucial, especially for this moment. Why do you think that it's important that we decolonize our minds, not just as individuals, but for the collective liberation and future that we hope to achieve? Yeah, thank you so much for that question. I mean, I think for me, um, you know, I think about that every every minute of the day for me, right? Not mm. only in the way that I think of the ways in which my own thoughts, my own emotions, my own behaviors, right, might be carried by many different biases or many different ways in which I've been conditioned to think or act or, or mm. even think about myself, right? Um, and I think I also bring that into, I mean, that very much informs the way that I like to think about healing, right? Um, right. And I really do believe that decolonizing, really looking at the many ways in which, um, you know, the ongoing effects of colonization right now, right? Like our internal, our internalized, right? Racism. How does that mm. show up every day? How does that show up in the way that I think of myself? How does that show up in the way that I interact with a family member, right? How does that show up right. in the way that I might reinforce, right? Anti-Blackness mm. or, um, you know, uh, silencing someone or, you know, I think I hold a lot of responsibility on myself and I think in the way that I think about decolonizing I think about it as a healing practice I think about it as like a way of liberation but I also think mm. about it as a way of like really rebelling <laughs> of yes. rebelling yes. against right and really saying no I'm going to show up as myself and part of this journey is really really exploring and discovering that coreness that makes us mm. who we are, right? Um, and really thinking about, like, for myself personally and as a clinician, I often think, like, is that Western psychology, white Western psychology saying that? Is that the oppressor telling me that? Mm. Right? And I think that. Oh, no. Very interesting. Very interesting. What? <laughs> Yikes, right as she's talking about the importance of decolonization, about the Western world formulating our thought processes, she gets kicked off? Hmm. No. Okay, that is so odd. That is so odd. Um, I'm sure Lily will go ahead and join us back as soon as the forces that be FedEx allow her back on. But in the meantime, one of the crucial points that I think Lily was bringing up is about the importance of decolonization as a way of healing, but mostly as a means for us to show up unapologetically as ourselves, but for how we view ourselves within the framework of society and how they have expectations for us to be um, based upon preconceived notions. And so I really wanted to, oh, she's back on. Lily, can you hear us? Yes, okay. I can. I'm here. So the last point that you were talking about is the importance of decolonization for the purposes of being able to show up unapologetically as self. I don't know if you want to continue that or maybe start a new thought process. I, I will leave it at that. I think you said it just perfectly. I think that word unapologetic is exactly the word that I was looking okay. for. And yes, that's exactly perfect. What I just wanted to make sure before they kick you off again, girl.
<laughs> no, right? It is them. I don't know what is going on here, but I, I think, you know, on that note, I think you framed it so perfectly, so beautifully, um, in a way that helps us to understand that this is something that was done purposefully, right? It wasn't mm-hmm. something society will have us believe that this was accidental, right? That, oh, we we had no mass intent to make black and Latino folks hate one another, right? But yet it shows up in a manner in which the same societal viewpoints keep us from understanding that we're really all in this together, right? That there is no, I'm free now and then you next. It's about our collective solidarity and liberation and the only way that we're going to be able to get to a point of freedom, whatever that may mean, is by doing it together because we were conditioned together but we were conditioned to hate against one another and Mm. so it's fascinating and I wanted to ask you Lara um, as someone who really highlights the experiences of both undocumented immigrant but more, more so LGBTQ plus communities and I think when it comes time for showing up unapologetically as themselves another community that's had to do that is the LGBTQ community mm-hmm. and I wanted to ask about how your experiences you know being a member of that community has meant a process of decolonizing your own mind or potentially the mind of your own family and friends because for mm-hmm. me as an immigrant I know that there's a lot of homophobia within our community. Yes. There's folks who simply don't get it, who will utilize the experiences that we have based on previous trauma as a reason to explain why it's something that shouldn't be. But as we know, people were born that way. There is nothing unnatural about being a member of the LGBTQ plus community. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to ask you, how have you, like Lily, had to decolonize your mind or the minds of those around you? Oh, what a, a deep, uh, intentional question. And I, I was kind of thinking about those things and along those lines as I was listening to both you and Lily share And actually, before this call, I posted uh, one of my favorite quotes by Leela Watson um, that says, if you have come here to help me, you are wasting your time. But if Mm. you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. And Mm. I feel like that's at the core of a lot of what I feel in my heart and a lot of what I put out into the universe. And it's certainly been a process, right? Um, Definitely with my family um, being, you know, of Mexican origin, uh, when I was first exploring my sexuality, that was a really difficult time for me um, because I knew that my parents were not going to be accepting and there was a lot of fear that I lived with. And I think as we talk about mental health, right, and the intersections of that, um, my fear was so large when I was 14 that I contemplated taking my life because I thought Mm -hmm. my parents you know, would be that disappointed in, in me that it would be better for me not to be here. And, wow. and I know that, um, you know, that's the, the sad reality for um, my LGBTQ siblings who have, you know, uh, died by suicide because of how deep um, that that fear and that rejection is and, and what we internalize is, is so, so, so insurmountable. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so those were things that, you know, I went through um, as a child, but something that was something, you know, I think it's the yes. resiliency and what I've learned from my ancestors, just what lives inside me intuitively. And that told me that, you know, I, I'm here and that there's nothing wrong with me and that yeah. there was something else going on here. And so um, truthfully, I think through the support of my friends and even by learning about different systems through my education, and I know that getting an education is a privilege, yes. um, I started to, to learn a little bit more about that and learn about myself um, and uh, just kind of be patient with my parents. And really, I think I tried to avoid conflict, which I think is related to the conversation that we're talking about is oftentimes what we do is try to avoid that conflict. And I think for me, it was just also trying to preserve my my own well-being because the conversations would become so hurtful. Hmm. Um, But it wasn't, to be honest, it wasn't until Pulse happened, um, until several of my black and brown siblings were killed in the Pulse nightclub that I decided to take a stand and um, one of the first things that I did was you know I decided to bring this up with the National Latinx uh, Psychological Association and say we need to change our name we need to you know use pronouns we need to really take a stand for our LGBTQ siblings and then I went home and Mm. I let my my mom in particular I think she really struggled um, she didn't like me posting pictures with my partners and I just took a stand. Oh, wow. I said, you know, this is, this is my life. This is who I am. And, you know, my cousins are allowed to, why can't I, I'm no different. And right. this is a social justice issue and I'm never mm-hmm. going to hold back again. I've been holding back because I thought it was, you know, a way for us to have a relationship. And, you know, in the in that year, it was really difficult because it sometimes it meant not having a relationship with my mom and taking a break from that relationship to care mm-hmm. for my heart. And also for her to understand that this wasn't a choice. This is simply who I am and that I deserve love. Yeah. And, you know, after years of heartache, my mom and my dad, you know, have both come around and I think that they get it. And I have these conversations with them. I think for me, because I'm at the intersection of a lot of different identities, yes, I still hold a lot of privilege, you know, my education being a huge, huge one. Um, but I think I'm able to step into other people's shoes because I've always been at the margins. I've always been mm. borderlands. I've always been othered. Yeah. And something inside of me has allowed me to recognize that, that, that it's not about me. And you internalize it unconsciously sometimes, Absolutely. But, but consciously, I think there's a lot of love that surrounds me and I cultivate that. Um, I, I like cultivate protections around me to remind me that it's not about me. And so I think that that helps uh, me relate to people who might have different experiences than I do. And I use that in my work with my parents, you know, even defending my dissertation this weekend, we're celebrating on Friday. And once we wrapped up, cleaned everything up, we went inside and we watched a movie. And I think mm. I didn't I, I didn't think about it uh, consciously. I think it's like sometimes these things come up intuitively for me. I think there's something guiding me to bring these things up. We watched Hidden Figures. Oh, and wow. the first scene, you know, I, I told my parents what the movie was about. I said, I think you all really would really like this in the first scene. I don't know if you all remember is um, the black uh, women's car broke down and. Yes. Um, there, there's a police officer 
you know, um, coming and approaching them and they're, you know, fearful. And Mm. um, my dad right away was like, oh, you know, like, have you seen the news? So it opened up a dialogue Mm, and we were able to just have conversations from Friday all the way through yesterday. I talked to my dad today and they, you know, he said that on their way home, on their drive home, my mom um, and him had said, yeah, you know, like all these things are going on. They're angry. And that's related to us. And my dad's like, Mm. now, like, I know it's not about us. It's it's a system. And hopefully people realize that this impacts all of us. And I was just like, so heartened by that, because I I've been planting seeds with my parents. And I I think that they're finally getting it and seeing that, you know, it's not us against them. It's we are in this together and the system is the problem, which really uh, highlights Ibram Kendi's work, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That there's no in-between space of being not racist and the claim of not racist and neutrality is a mask for racism. Um, Come on, Jim. Yes. (laughs) And what we really need to look at is um, the policies, right? Policies are distant, as um, Kendi says. Um, and we need to really look at that um, and, and, and recognize that those policies are meant to purposely oppress us um, and to kill us in some instances, right? Or to kill mm. us slowly in other ways, um, to prevent us from um, being healthy, free individuals. And, and the more that we see that we're in this fight together, the more that we'll be able to combat those systems. So I always think that the key is love. Um, and that's what I always, you know, try to bring up in whatever circles I am. How are we more alike than dissimilar? Um, but how can mm-hmm. we still hold space for the ways in which we're targeted differently um, and make sense of that and, and hold space for each other and hold love for one another so that we could create a better society? Hmm. Lara, that is so beautiful. I can't even tell you how much hope that just brings me in that moment that you mentioned the fact that your parents were starting to understand we're starting to get exactly why it is that black people are on the streets right now doing what we do right Mm -hmm. like that just gives me so much hope that our future is actually going to be a shared one right because Mm -hmm. sure we can build our individual community sure but as we've seen with movements they're not sustained without intersectionality mm-hmm. and it also brings me hope for members of the lgbtq plus community that no matter what you may be facing right now there is an other side to that and i really wanted if you don't mind to share any advice that you may have for a member of the community who may be feeling exactly what you felt a few years back with your parents and having to come out to them and explain to them that you were born this way and that members of the community were born this way. Like, how do you go about navigating that and what advice would you give to anybody who was or is where you were? Mm, mm. Well, the first thing that I, I would say is there's nothing wrong with you. You are divine and you are light and you are meant to be. You are meant to exist and you are deserving of love, freedom, and peace. Mm. And, you know, don't let anyone push you out of the closet, tell you to stay in. Let all of your decisions around how and where you choose to share your true selves with individuals come from you. And, Mm. you know, know that there are people 
who love you and know that there are people who will hold that space, even if not everyone around you is ready. And know that if people are not ready, it's not about you. It has nothing to do with you. And there will be other people, you know, families of choice that will embrace you. Um, And that it's okay to set boundaries. Oftentimes, because we're used to so much harm, right? We're used to so much toxicity because of the environment um, and the oppression that we're subjected to that we think it's normal to be treated that way. And we think that we don't have to set boundaries with our families because there are our families. But trust Mm. that it wasn't until I recognized my worth and I set my own boundaries, even with my mom, like one of the people that I love the most in this world and would do anything for. I would do anything anything for my mom it wasn't until I set a boundary with her and said I cannot and no longer accept this behavior from you because it's breaking Mm. my heart and until you're ready to come back to me with open love and open arms I can't have a relationship with you and it's okay to do that it is okay to do that doesn't make you a bad person Hmm. It's just what you need to do to survive, and that's okay. Um, and things will, will get better. Look for the love that surrounds you because it's there, and know that you deserve hmm. that. And that's what I would say, and that's just from my own experience. Wow, that is beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing your experience <laughs> and for giving people permission right, to cut off their own toxicity, whether it be in their family or outward facing, that it's okay. Mm -hmm. And just because it's your family doesn't mean that we allow them to continuously cause us to have ongoing trauma, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think a lot of times in families of color, right, we often hear this thing that, oh, you know, we have generational trauma. And it's very valid. It is Mm -hmm. absolutely valid, but we need to be dealing with it that does not give anyone permission mom dad grandma Mm -hmm. to continue to traumatize us Mm -hmm. right And just because you were traumatized doesn't mean that it's okay to go ahead and further traumatize someone else and it's fear though too you know like i just want to add one one small thing like my mom kind of started opening up once she saw a lot of people around me that loved me because she i think one of her deepest fears was that I wasn't going to be loved and that I was going to face a lot of discrimination and hardship. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until she came around people and saw, like she was able to step back and see, wow, like you are are full of so many people that love you. And I think that that was uh, really created a shift for my mom um, to not act out of fear and instead Mm -hmm. act out of love. Oh, wow. Thank you so much for sharing your perspective, Valada. I really wish we had an entire hour just to focus on that conversation because it is something that our community, whether Black, Brown, continue to face with our own parents, whether it be about being a member of the LGBTQ community or you know just being in this movement, being involved, fighting for the things that we fight for. You know, as someone who considers myself to be an ally to the community, and I often have to push back against the homophobia within my own family and I'll have them ask me things like what are you a part of the community and I want people to be clear that you don't need to be a part of the community to advocate for a better tomorrow for the community that you're advocating for that's okay and if people want to say that then that's their business right it is our duty to fight for our freedom is what Asada Shakur says and that Mm. means not just our individual freedom but our collective liberation and to that I think one of the points that has continued to come up 
with each of your experiences based on what I've heard thus far is your own individual lived experiences and how your own individual lived experiences has made you the expert that you are and has made you able to be the clinicians that you are and the mental health professionals that you are. And so to that, Herman, I wanted to ask you, how has your own individual lived experiences made you uniquely qualified to do this work? Mm. Thank you for that question. And I just want to say, I have so much appreciation for uh, for Laura's uh, story and experience. Thank you, Laura, for sharing uh, so personally. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, and congratulations on your defense, uh, Doctora. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think for me, you know, when I heard you speak about the fear that your parents had, I I can... I can definitely relate to that. Um, you know, when back in 2006 and 2007, when there were big protests for immigration reform across the country, um, I, I remember, you know, I was in high school, I was undocumented, and I really wanted to go to those protests. And my parents were so afraid of going and demonstrating because it was a huge risk for them, right? And, and they were really afraid that our family would be separated, that, you know, we lived in Arizona. And back then we had Sheriff Joe Arpaio, which was, you know, the named the, the toughest sheriff, right? Because yeah. he was rounding up people like us, running up undocumented immigrants and putting us in, in mm. detention camps, right? And basically concentration camps in the desert, you know, in 120 degree weather, torturing, you know, immigrants. And so there was a lot of fear and, and, and it took a lot of convincing, right? And, and when I came out of the shadows as somebody who was undocumented in college and I started advocating for, you know, better policies mm -hmm. and, and things like the DREAM Act and things like that, my, my parents were really afraid and they were really concerned about uh, about the risks that I was taking, right? Because I, I could be taken away from them at any time. And, and it, it, it took a lot of effort. It took a lot of education, a lot of convincing. Um, you know, I, I can really relate yes. to Lada's story in, in working with her family, right? Mm. Planting seeds little by little until until they're comfortable. Mm. And, and, you know, to the point that now they're proud, right? Mm. Now that you know, they're kind of proud at, at, at the, the effect that, that these things, these risks that we've taken to share our yes. stories um, have changed things. You know, we've won a lot of bottles. We've lost a lot of bottles, but we've, we've won a lot of small and big bottles. And, and I think the most important battle that we've won as an immigrant rights movement yes. is the approval of the majority of the people of this country, right? Uh, we are... I think uh, undocumented immigrants <laughs> and youth yes. in particular have more support than any politician, right? And and <laughs> when we look at the polls, and, and I love, no, I'm, a, I'm a numbers person, right? I'm a, yes. I'm a scholar. Um, and, and that's what, you know, that's, that's what the surveys are telling us, that, that we, have, we have won, you know, in, in, in about a decade, we've won the support of the majority of Americans. And so, um, so I think those experiences are what, what, um, you know, what, what made me qualified. And, and I think that having lived it and having dealt with the mental health that comes in navigating that process of kind of coming out of the shadows, 
losing that fear and finding liberation mm. i think i think that's uh you know that's that's what makes me unique um and i think in in the way that i see activism and i think others in this world probably see it this way too yes is that it really begins internally it begins in your mind right um i think that something that colonization you know, despite all of the all of the enslavement of people and, and all of the all of the deaths and the murders and, and the taking of land, I think the one of the 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 awful awful harms of colonization that still live with us is this idea mm. that that white people, white European people are superior, right? And and black, indigenous, mm. mixed, Latinx, Asian, everything yes. else is inferior. And and that still exists, right? That that simple belief propagates right through the educational system, through the healthcare system, yes. mental health, legal system, enforcement. It's everywhere, right? And so I think that uh, for me, mm-hmm. it's about pushing the colonization is about pushing back against that notion. Um, and, I, yes. and, I, and I think that. That's kind of what we tried to do with the guide for mental health providers to little by little, right, begin to kind of push against that, you know, and and something that is central to the guide, something that was really important for us to include in the guide is that uh, providers need to focus on on really hearing the Mm. experiences of undocumented immigrants who are impacted by DACA right in the way that that you've been listening to our stories you know in this conversation um that one of the parts that you just mentioned to to the guide herman is about it being a social determinant of health that i was reading through the guide and that's something that stuck stuck out to me the most and it stuck out because for me as a DACA recipient, as an immigrant black woman at the intersections of so many marginalized identities, right? Being black, being undocumented, being a woman, like how much more can we take? Um, and I looked at that and I looked at the perspectives of it being a social determinant. And I wanted Cheryl, if you could touch on what do you mean by that? What do you mean that DACA and the DACA program is a social determinant of health? For people who might not know exactly what comes along with the territory of being a DACA recipient. Absolutely. Uh, Thank you. And thank I, you know, I have really appreciated learning a lot more about my colleagues. We have been working together uh, for the last few months and Hermione and I for the last few years. And I'm always blessed to learn something new about them. So I thank you all for your vulnerability and sharing today. Hmm. Um, And I appreciate all I've learned today. So, you know, when we look at health uh, in, in uh, an individual in terms of context, I am a clinical social worker, and I know in many other professions we're trained in this way yes. to look at individuals as part of system. 